0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So as we get started this morning, I need you to use your imaginations for a minute. Imagine a big circle, okay? It's so a big circle here, and inside this big circle are all the ways. Everybody's got their own big circle, okay? And within the big circle, within your big circle, is all the ways that you interpret Reality within this circle is your perspective on the world. Within this big circle is your posture toward the world. Basically, in this big circle is how you live and do anything. All right, can you guys imagine that? The big, the big. Everybody's got a, a big circle around them. Now, within this bigger circle that we all have, within our our big circle, there's a smaller circle. And, and this smaller circle, which sits about right here, is how you relate to God. The, the smaller circle is your relationship to God. And, and the way this works is that whatever is in this smaller circle is actually what impacts the bigger circle. You guys got that? The, the smaller circle here of how you relate to God the smaller circle of your relationship to God emanates an influence. It it has a ripple effect that goes into everything else, which means if we want to make any sense of our big circle stuff, then we have to focus on this smaller circle. Make sense? And when it comes to this smaller circle, we should ask, what actually shapes this? What what mainly shapes the way that we relate to God? Well, there are two things mainly. Number one is what you know about God, and number two is what you know about yourself. Those two kinds of knowledge, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of yourself, they are the most important kinds of knowledge that you have. And John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, tells us this in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is a big two-volume magnum opus, right, from the Reformation. In that book, in the very first sentence of that book, Calvin writes, quote, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So it goes like this. What we know about God and what we know about ourselves determines how we relate to God And then how we relate to God shapes and affects how we interact with everything else in the world, right? And and the reason that I wanna start here this morning is because Psalm 51 is actually all about this. Psalm 51 shows us mainly how David relates to God. And he relates to God, we see, through 21 petition verbs. That's most of this psalm. Most of this psalm is David asking God to do something. However, there are a couple places, a couple important places where David is confronted by reality and he says, basically, I know this about myself and I know this about God. And what I'd like for us to do this morning is to just slow down and to see this together and to see how it's all connected. We're gonna focus this morning just on a few verses here, but I think these few verses will help us understand all the rest of the Psalm. Overall, Psalm 51 teaches us three truths. Number one, right here, we are worse sinners than we think. Number two, there are two things that God will not do. And then number three is that we can and must seek the mercy of God. And we're gonna walk through each of these three things, but first let's pray again and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we ask again in this moment that by the power of your Holy Spirit, oh speak to us, accomplish your will in this place, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the first truth to see is that we are worse sinners than we think and I know that's not the most pleasant thing to hear, right? but it is necessary to see this in Psalm 51. And and what I especially appreciate about this Psalm is that it does build upon something that we all already know, because we all know in here, right? We know that we are sinners, right? Let's just try this out. Raise your hand if you know that you are a sinner. All right, look around. We got a room full of sinners, okay? But with some good theology, okay? that we, we know this about ourselves. We know, the Bible tells us, clearly: we are sinners. We are sinners. We, we know, everybody knows, that something is off with ourselves. We know that we've fallen short of God's glory, either through what we do or don't do, either through our thoughts or our words or our actions. We have all transgressed the moral will of God. We are sinners and we know it. And yet, at the same time, we, we often don't understand how bad it is. Our understanding of sin on a functional level, it tends to stay pretty light. So we can all say we know we're sinners, and we can also say we don't really know how bad of sinners We are, and this is where I think we can learn from David. Look at verse three here in Psalm 51. David writes there, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See, at this point, as much as David had tried to ignore his sin and to hide his sin, that is no longer an option for him because now David's sin is right in front of him and there's no getting around it. We're familiar, there's a backstory to Psalm 51. There's a, a little superscript you can see right above the psalm that tells us that this psalm came after the prophet Nathan rebuked David for his sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah and the full story of that sin is in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and it's, it's, it's gruesome, it's horrible. If we're reading along in the narrative, David has not seemed to be a horrible person. But in these two chapters, David does a horrible thing. And the whole account of this section in 2 Samuel is actually patterned after the fall of Adam in Genesis 3. This is really, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, this is the fall story of David. And the sin that we read about is meant to disturb us. It's meant to make us sick. And by the time that David is writing these words in Psalm 51, his sin is all that he could think about. It had made him sit. He says here, I know my transgressions. And when he says that, he means that he really knows, like he knows his transgressions because he now has drilled down into the depths of his transgressions and the deeper down that he has gone, he now understands first that his sin was mainly against God and second that his sinfulness was pervasive. I want us to look at this for a minute because If you're familiar with Psalm 51, if you're familiar with the story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, there's a temptation for us to read Psalm 51 and to distance ourselves from David. I just want to say, what is true about David and his sin in this psalm is true for every single one of us. So we got to see this. Look at verse four. He says to God, against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David obviously here, he has felt the displeasure of God through Nathan's rebuke and and God's displeasure at David of course is completely justified because David's sin was first and primarily against God. Now, of course we know that David's sin was against others too. He sinned egregiously against Bathsheba and Uriah and it was absolutely horrible. But even worse than that is that David has sinned against God. And that is certainly the way that 2 Samuel 12 describes it when Nathan the prophet rebuked David. Nathan says to David, you have despised Yahweh. He says to David, you have utterly scorned Yahweh. And when David is convicted of his sin and and when he repents, David says, I have sinned against Yahweh. This puts the sin of David in a category all its own. That's why David can isolate it the way he does in verse four. He can say, I've sinned against you only, God. That is the worst of my issues here. It's that I've sinned against you. See, David does not minimize the horror of his sin by focusing on how he has offended God, but actually he's maximizing the horror of his sin. And what I just said is only a controversial statement if you're an atheist. Because for those of us who have read the Bible, For those of us who know something about the holiness and glory of God, we understand that our sin being against God is what makes it the worst thing we're capable of. David had sinned against his creator. He had sinned against the most high God who had shown him so much unmerited favor. This is the sovereign God over all things who had been shockingly good to David against all odds and David sinned against him. David sinned against him. And see, it's that realization that leaves David heartbroken. That is why David here is shattered. And this is actually, I think, a good test for us This is a good test for us on whether our conviction of sin goes deep enough because a lot of times I think the the whole topic of sin, which we're talking about now, the the reality of our own sin, a lot of times it can make us resent ourselves. We we can think of our failures. We can think of our sins and it can almost create in us a kind of self-hatred or at the very least an inward frustration, right? But get this, if that's where you stay with your sin, it's because you are settling for something too shallow. We should go deeper, deeper. And when we go deeper, the first thing we must do is to get over ourselves. If you want to go deeper in the knowledge of your sin, Get over yourself. Do not wallow in self-criticism. As much as we might think that's admirable, it's not. It's not. The, The problem with your sin is not how badly it makes you feel. The problem with your sin is not even how it affects others. The main problem with your sin is that it is an offense against God. We sin against God, the Father Almighty, ruler of heaven and earth. We sin against him. Sin is violence against His holiness. It's an insult to His purity. It's rebellion from His sufficiency. And when we understand this, when we remember God, we don't stay mad at ourselves, but we become sorrowful because of the way that we have treated Him. Him, a real person, not an idea. He's a person. Our sin is against him. And listen, he does not deserve it. God does not deserve it. Look at verse five. David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he's drilling down here, see? And at, at first, we see that not only does he now know that sin is mainly against God, but now he, he sees, me. my sinfulness is pervasive. The morally outrageous behavior of David in 2 Samuel 11 was not out of character. It was of his character right? See, this is a way that I think a lot of times we do this. We can make little excuses about our sin by saying things like, I was out of character. Or or we'll say things like, I was not myself. But you absolutely were, right? That's the point. Your sin came from you. It didn't come from anybody. It came from you. And so when you sin, you're sinning because you are a sinner. And that's what David understands here. He understands that the capacity to sin in the way that he did had always been in him and it was still in him even after Nathan's rebuke, even as he penned these words in Psalm 51. David knew, he knows here, he knows I am a mess. He was a mess. He was a mess and he could not ignore it anymore. And Psalm 51 will not really make sense to us until we start to think like David does here. You could say the same thing about the whole Bible. The whole Bible is not really gonna make sense to us. (laughs) Unless we understand what David is saying here. The big circle, our big circle, of how we relate to the world and God and everything, It's always gonna be distorted and off and broken and skewed unless we know this about ourselves. We've all established here, we've said we know we're sinners, okay? So drill down, drill down, drill down. Don't comfort yourself then. We know we're sinners. Don't comfort yourself then by the thought that other people are worse than you. Stop that. Don't think at least I'm not this or that. Or at least I don't do that thing anymore. Or at least I do these good things now. It's like it's like the Puritan Thomas Watson put it in 1692. He writes, Some think as long as they are civil, they are well enough. Aye, but the nature is poisoned. Thou carriest a hell about thee. Thy heart like muddy ground defiles the purest water that runs through it. Nay, though thou art regenerate, there is much of the old man in the new man. Oh, how should our sin humble us? It should. Our sin should humble us, but we have to know it. We have to know our sin. And so we have to stop living in a world of excuses. We have to stop staying superficial because that's actually delusional, delusional, delusional. We're in a fantasy land in this world of excuses. It means that we are actually actively not knowing ourselves. We are distorting then the smaller circle. If we don't know ourselves, we distort the small circle, which then affects the big circle. And so we just have to be clear here at the star. We have to be clear, we are worse sinners than we think. Okay, that's the first thing. For the small circle, we are worse sinners than we think. But then secondly, there are two things God will not do. I want you to see this. I, I, I say it that way when, you know, because that's the, that's the language of the psalm. That's the language that David used. Look at verse 16. Again, most of the psalm here is petitions. It's, it's David asking God to do things. But in verse 16, he, he says something that he knows about God. Look at verse 16. He says to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And with the mention of sacrifice here in Psalm 51, it's a callback to Psalm 50, which we saw last week, Pastor Mikey explained to us in Psalm 50 that God is rebuking misguided and hypocritical worship. And a big part of that distorted worship is thinking wrongly about sacrifice or offerings, we could say. And we think wrongly about sacrifice when we think that God needs our sacrifice because he doesn't. And we think wrongly about sacrifice when we go through the motions and keep offering more and more and more stuff to God while we keep back our hearts. Both of those are wrong. And David knows that God does not want that because that is empty. And so this is something that God will not do. God will not delight in empty sacrifice. We see that in verse 16. Because, verse 17, the real sacrifice... Real offering, verse 17, is a broken spirit, a a, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Did Did you hear the two negatives there in verses 16 and 17? David is telling us here two things that God will not do, right? Over here, God will not delight in empty sacrifice, right? See that? And God will not despise a contrite heart. And it's really important for us to know this about God. These are strong words here in the psalm. These are words that are meant to give us a vantage into the heart of God. And David understates these words in a poetic way that's meant to draw us in as readers. And I wonder if you caught that in verse 16. David here is using a kind of rhetorical device that we use all the time in our modern speech. We don't even think about it, we use it so much. Here's an example. This is a completely random example, by the way. I'm just making this up. Uh, but say the boys and I are playing wiffle ball at a park. And, and we're playing at a park that happens to be close by some tennis courts. And there's a lot of tennis uh, players out there doing their thing and we're playing here, not too far from them, but far enough we think. And I throw the ball to Micah who's hitting and Micah gets a hold of one and the ball sails over the fence into the tennis courts and it hits a tennis player in the head, okay? No offense, tennis players, all right? Just right there. You guys can imagine, now imagine that. Imagine I throw him the ball and he hits it, and it's like slow motion. And I'm watching this ball sail over the fence, into the tennis courts, and bonk. Now, when I see that, I say, not good. When I say not good, what do I mean? It's bad, right? That's, that's, that's bad. That's not good. That's bad. That's a bad thing that just happened, Right? We do this all the time, all the time. So, so, here, so if you see something that you that you know, you see something that you like, well, I guess gave it away. You see something and you say, not too shabby, what do we mean? It's nice, it's good, right? Or here's here's one I, I like I like this one. Um, if someone says, I, I'll give you this example. We were getting some work done on our house and I was trying to find a, a contractor to, to do it, and I was asking a guy, he gave me a reference. He told me a guy who's, he, he knows, a family member, and he goes, he's not the cheapest. What does that mean? <laughs> he's expensive, right? <laughs> We talk this way all the time, right? And that's what's happening here. It's an intentional understatement. And, and David's talking this way. We tend to talk this way, not to dim reality, but actually to highlight reality in a way that honors the listener. We want them to connect the dots. We want them to make the, the the connection here. The same kind of speech is happening here in Psalm 51. Look at the words. There are two main objects here, right? In verses 16 and 17. there are There's empty sacrifice right here and, and there's contrite heart right here. Empty sacrifice and contrite heart. And we know that God does not delight in empty sacrifice and God does not despise contrite hearts. And so we're supposed to think here. We're supposed to, to press in and ask questions as we meditate and we have to think first, what does it mean to delight in something? And kids in here, kids, you can do this. I tried this out with my kids last week. What does it mean to delight in something? If you delight in something, you do what? You enjoy it, right? You enjoy it, you, you, you love it. We delight in ice cream, right? I, you know, most of us. Um, we, we love it, we delight in it, we love it. Now, what's the opposite, work with me here, what's the opposite of loving something? You, you hate it, so you hate it, right? The opposite of love is hate, okay? And so what's another word for hate? Mikey, you said it. Despise, everybody tracking? Another word for hate is the word despise, okay? And so when we're thinking this way, we can see, okay, look, this is what's going on here. The, the words despise and delight are actually opposites of each other, agreed? You see that? They're opposites of each other. And we know that God does not delight in empty sacrifice, which is to say, he despises empty sacrifice. And, and we know that God does not despise a contrite heart, which is to say, he delights in a contrite heart. See, what David has done for us here is David has put it all right here together in two verses. He's put it all here in two verses. All we have to do as readers is drop the negatives and switch the verbs. And what, what happens as we, as we do this, as we meditate on this, we learn that God actually despises empty sacrifice, but God actually delights in a contrite heart. And it's one thing to just read it that way, right? It's another thing to discover it. I think that's the reason David puts it this way in Psalm 51. For those of you in here who are educators, you know that the best kind of learning happens not through wooden repetition, not just through dull recitation, right? But the best kind of learning happens through discovery. The best kind of learning happens when we see it for the first time and the lights come on. It's when we have that eureka moment that then becomes deeply encoded in us. That is what makes the difference. And so I wonder, I'm asking now for us here in this room, has that happened for you when it comes to this truth about God? Do you know this about God? Like know it. Do you know this about God? That God hates your pretense that God loves your honesty and it's honesty fundamentally with him see and of course honesty with God is humility if we know the truth about ourselves if we know the truth about our sin we're not bringing swagger to God right We don't we don't shake our fist at him with entitlement. If we're we're honest, our hearts are contrite. That's what it means for us to be real with God. To be real with him. We're not trying to hide anymore. We're not trying to ignore it anymore. We're we're not trying to make him think we're something we're not, but instead we come to God and we say, God, here I am. God, this is me. God, you see it. You see it all. Brothers and sisters, do you ever say that to him? And if you don't, if you are never honest with God, how heavy is that burden you carry? Aren't you tired of trying to sow fig leaves together every day? One of my favorite lines from Augustine, and I, you've probably heard me say this before because I feel like I say it all the time. So it, it, it's, in, it's in his book, Confessions, and Augustine says there, he writes, nothing is closer to the ear of God then a confessing heart and a life lived by faith. See, the way this goes is that the life of faith is the life of confession. Faith in God is being honest with God but you can't be honest with God unless you know he delights in it, see? You're never gonna be honest with God unless you know that he delights in your honesty. He does because God wants you. He wants you, not your avatar, not your resume, not your fig leaves. He wants you. And I know that's too good to believe for some of you. The news is too good to believe it. It's just pinging off. Hear it, he wants you. He wants you. And so put it all together here. What we learn from David in Psalm 51 is that we are worse sinners than we think. Our sin is mainly against God, and our sinfulness is pervasive. And while God despises our sin, He delights in our knowing that we are sinners because He delights in hearts that have been humbled by the truth of who we are. And see, it's only those hearts that can and must seek the mercy of God. And that's the third point. We can and we must seek the mercy of God. This is the third truth we see in Psalm 51. And this is, this is now, we're talking about the main way here this, this smaller circle is shaped and formed. This is how the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves come together. And we actually see this right away in verse one. David starts the Psalm by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And this first petition in verse one is really the banner petition over this entire Psalm. Every other petition, all 20 petitions besides this one, they all fit beneath this one. Blot out my transgressions, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, let me hear joy and gladness, let my bones rejoice, hide your face from my sins, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Don't. Leave me, open my lips to praise you. Do good to Zion. All of these petitions are really extensions of this one petition, this first petition. Have mercy on me, O oh God. And so, we must seek God's mercy because of who we are. And we can seek God's mercy because of who he is. We we are sinful and desperate. God is good and abounding in mercy. And there's really no way that we can relate to God apart from those two truths. And that's what Psalm 51, I believe, is fundamentally about. I, I really believe this this is why i have for, for several for several years now it has been my habit to pray psalm fifty one every single morning every single morning I wake up by the mercy of God and I quietly get to my study while everyone else in my house and on my block, really, is still asleep, and, uh, you know, I got a minty toothpaste taste in my mouth, and I have a cup of coffee on my desk, and I have my Bible open before me, and I sit down, and I say, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And see, I have to tell you about this. I have to tell you about this and I have to commend this to you because, because God has never not answered that prayer. He's never not answered it. In fact, I think you can say that kind of prayer, that prayer is close to the ear of God as it were. It's close to his ear. God God delights in our seeking his mercy. And he will always hear us seek his mercy. In fact, we have great, great confidence that God will always seek his mercy according to his steadfast love. Because what is that? What is the steadfast love of God? The steadfast love of God is a main theme throughout the whole storyline of scripture. Some English translations put it as God's faithful love or God's unfailing love and that's what it means. God's steadfast love is his relentless commitment to bless his people it's his steadfast unfailing resolve to show his love to his people the way that my kids have learned this is that God's steadfast love is his never stopping never giving up unbreaking always and forever love amen that's what it is And where do we see this love most clearly? The cross of Christ. And this is what we saw back in Romans 5 in May. We see God's love most vividly in the cross of Christ. See, in the Old Testament, when the saints prayed according to God's steadfast love, they prayed in hope of this love. They prayed according to the promise of this love. But today, we pray according to how this love has been demonstrated, and that was in Jesus. That was when Jesus died on the cross. That was when Jesus poured out his blood of the new covenant. And so our praying today, according to God's steadfast love, is our praying according to the blood of Jesus. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Have mercy on me, O God, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood that was poured out for me. Blood that covered all of my sin because, yes, I am a sinner. But the blood. Yes, 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 I am a worse sinner than I often think. but the blood, yes, my sinfulness is pervasive, but the blood, God despises me trying to save myself but God delights in a contrite heart that knows its only hope is the blood of Christ. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. My only hope, sinners in the room, sinners. Hey, sinners, our only hope is the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you seek the mercy of God according to his steadfast love, if you seek the mercy of God according to the blood of Jesus poured out for you, God will hear you and God will give you mercy. Yes, he will. He will. And so the question is, do you seek him? Would you this morning seek the mercy of Of God. In this moment, on behalf of God, I invite you to do that. We're all coming from different places. We know that. We're all coming from different places. We all have different stories. We all have different things in this exact moment running through our heads. They're all different, right? But on this point, we are exactly the same. Every single one of us are exactly the same in that right along with David, we are desperate, utterly desperate for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And it is mercy that is offered to us. Receive it, receive it. It is mercy for you to have. If you've never trusted in Jesus before, put your faith in him, ask him to save you, become a Christian, receive the mercy of God. If if you're here and you feel just absolutely beaten down by sin, if you are discouraged and exhausted from trying to keep up appearances, if you are tired of empty sacrifices, you can stop. Receive the mercy of God. That's what now brings us to this table. Because at this table where we come together, we we come together and we say together, we're all the same, man. We come here together to say, "We're, we're all just beggars who have found bread. We say together, the blood of Jesus That's what we say at the table. What we say at the table is we say the blood of Jesus is my only hope, our only hope. And so this morning, if that's your hope, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you, sinner, know that, then that actually is that smaller circle for you, right? That's what this table is. This table is, we we say, it, it defines that smaller circle the moment of communion with Jesus, the the moment of our coming together to hope in his blood, all that this moment represents of his salvation and our fellowship with him, that is truly what forms the smaller circle which affects the bigger circle. So if he is your savior, if he is your Lord, if you've trusted him, if you sinner have received the mercy of God, together with our church this morning, I invite you, we invite you Let's eat and drink together. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.